0: The National Association of State Controlled Substance Authorities, or NASCA, is providing this podcast as a service to its members, associate members, and others. But it is neither a legal interpretation nor a statement of NASCA policy. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by the NASCA Association. Views expressed by guests are their own, and their appearance on this program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Views and opinions expressed by the NASCA podcast host are those of the podcast host and do not necessarily reflect the view of NASCA or any of its officials. If you have any questions about this disclaimer, please contact our office at nasca.org. Welcome to the official podcast of NASCA, the National Association of State-Controlled Substance Authorities. Here you will find conversations, lectures, and thoughts on various topics involving controlled substances, leading experts sharing their knowledge and ideas on today's medications, dangerous drugs, and substance abuse. NASCA is an association of state government agencies, along with various stakeholders, who oversee controlled substances. Through this association, we work together to make our country, our world, a safer place. All right, well, I want to thank Tom Knight for being here with Invistics. Tom has been a member of NASCA for a few years, and I've known Tom since I think about 2000, and I want to say 15, maybe 16. So, Tom, why don't you give everybody a, just a background on what you do and what Invistics is and how you came to NASCA?
1: Yeah, thanks, Ellen. and it has been almost five years since we met at one of the NASCA annual conferences in Scottsdale. So to introduce myself, I'm Tom Knight. I'm the founder and CEO of Invistics Corporation. We're a software company, data analytics and artificial intelligence company, and we've built some software that is designed to detect drug diversion, primarily in healthcare facilities like hospitals we're a 20-year-old company. We've been doing this for quite a long time. Our early work was done with manufacturers of pharmaceutical products, and we would track that throughout their whole supply chain from the factory on through the distribution centers. And for the last five years or so, we've seen a lot of success helping healthcare facilities to detect diversion in their facilities. So personally, I live in Atlanta, Georgia, have for the last 25 years my background before starting in I I ran a few large factories for some big manufacturing companies like Siemens and Alcoa, trained as an engineer way back when, and had a chance to really learn an engineering skill set and problem solving from an engineering perspective that still helps
0: me out today. You have a degree from MIT, don't you?
1: I do. I do. I, I joke that was the Michigan Institute of Trucking. Uh, it was in Massachusetts. It was a great, great chance for me to to learn some fantastic things from really gifted professors and do some research actually in this area way back when i i got my bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering from mit and then i went on to graduate school and i got two more degrees there a master's in management science and a master's in engineering and the whole time i was actually doing research on ways to track inventory through a complicated supply chain which has helped me out through to this day
0: And you call this, some of the stuff you're doing with hospital systems, this data integration. Is that right?
1: Yeah. It's one of the two key pieces of technology that we're finding is so effective. So when we say data integration, we're really talking about taking data that a hospital already has, uh, whether it's in their electronic medical record or data from other systems, like their automated dispensing cabinets, and we found a way to integrate that data together through automated feeds. And by putting all that data in one place, we're able to find patterns that are consistent with the theft of these drugs or the diversion of these drugs. When we first started, which was about five years ago, we had a proposal funded by the National Institutes of Health because they really thought it would be promising to pull that data together because typically, those systems aren't really talking to each other. And you can't really see, for example, if a nurse has dispensed two tablets of, say, hydrocodone from the automated dispensing cabinet, you know, like a Pixis machine or an OmniCell device, they might then go over into a totally different computer system, the electronic medical record, and chart the fact that they've administered two of those hydrocodone tablets to their patients, uh, or maybe not administered two, maybe only one. And Long story short, what data integration lets us do is it compares the transaction from that first cabinet where the nurse got those two tablets to the transaction that was entered later on in the electronic medical record and makes sure that everything reconciles. You know, were the two tablets, in fact, dispensed and administered or did we dispense two and only administer one or dispense two and administered none? And there's a lot more to it just in those two systems. But what we're basically doing is we're setting up automated feeds from hospitals, from retail pharmacies, from outpatient centers like infusion centers, ambulatory surgical centers. And we're basically taking these big databases that are separated, and we set up these automated feeds from our customer to our servers located in the internet and in the cloud. And every time new data comes in, we're basically throwing it into this big haystack. And we've trained the computer, which I'll talk about later, to find the needles in the haystack that represent potential diversion.
0: Yeah, one of the things, and this is how you and I actually met, was I was given a presentation at NASCA at the conference. And as a diversion investigator, one of the things that was very frustrating to me was the fact that these two systems didn't talk. For listeners who might be listening to this podcast, are not familiar with how this used to be. I would go or get a complaint from a hospital, and they would suspect that they had a nurse that might be diverting medications, and as you outlined, they might take it out of a Pixis or an AcuDose or an OmniCell or something like that, some sort of dispensing cabinet, and that would keep an electronic record of what was dispensed for a patient, but then that nurse would have to walk over to that patient's bedside from there, and then they would directly administer that medication to the patient in which they would have to record that. And sometimes they recorded it on an MAR or an EMAR, which is just an electronic version of that medication being administered. And those two systems didn't talk. Um, as you just said, they, they couldn't tell. So if I would get that complaint, then the director of nursing or pharmacy director would have to print out really both sets of records and then sift through them and look and see what was missing, if what waste might have been. Uh, not comparable and not accounted for, whatever it might be, and that was very time consuming and I, I remember when I was given the lecture i I was complaining really to uh, the membership about the fact that we had computer companies, and I could not believe that in two thousand and fifteen that we didn't have a system or systems that could talk to one another, that a pharmacy director just couldn't push a button and say, "Oh." She took it out of a dispensing cabinet, but then it just disappeared. It, it doesn't exist anywhere else, and we can't account for it. And I just couldn't understand that. And that's when you and I met because you were starting to develop that. And But you've really progressed, I think, a lot further than just that simple because that's really all I was after at the time. But your system is a lot more complicated and a lot more intricate, bringing in a lot of other things. Talk about some of the other stuff that helps with that.
1: Yeah, and, and that's exactly my memory, too, it was at a NASCA conference where you were giving a talk. It was in uh, 2015, and as an investigator, you have seen, well, I've got the two data, I've got the dispensing, I've got the administration, why can't I put them together? And that was a real light bulb moment for me because we've been doing that for years at Invistics with data integration at manufacturing companies. And I said, well, we could do the same thing in healthcare and help investigators very quickly see when things don't reconcile between those two systems. And it sounds easy, but even just integrating those two was a challenge. For example, what we discovered is the same person might be called by their married name in one of those systems and their maiden name in another of the systems. And so just joining people that happen to be different names was something we had to figure out. Similarly, the name of the medication can differ, but Long story short, we did figure that out and we now have really good accuracy joining just those two systems. But what we discovered in the research that was funded by the NIH is it's fairly easy for someone who is diverting to cover their tracks, so to speak, so they can falsify records to make it look like no medications were stolen when in fact the medications were stolen. And it can be hard to know that if you only look at those two systems. So one example, let's say that I have dispensed my two hydrocodone tablets, and that record exists in the cabinet. I can go over to the electronic medical record, and I can say I gave two tablets to my patient when, in fact, I put them in my pocket. So I falsify the record, and once we do the integration, if all we're looking at are those two things, the computer won't know that the... Two tablets that were supposedly charted were, in fact, not provided to the patient. So what we've learned is we can get a lot more accurate at even detecting falsified records if we pull data, not just the basic data from the EMR, but other data from the EMR. So, for example, a lot of electronic medical systems have barcode scanning where a nurse will go bedside when they're administering the patient and they'll scan the barcode that the patient has on their wrist. And then they'll chart that the two tablets were administered. And what we discovered is a lot of people who are diverting, they won't do that barcode scan because it beeps, the system beeps, the patient would say, wow, why didn't I get my pain medicine medication? So what they'll do is they'll go to a computer off the floor or away from the patient's bedside. They'll chart that falsified administration, but they won't have scanned the patient's barcode on their wrist. And when we had discovered that we could pull that data in as well on the barcode scan, it started to show us people that were falsifying records quite accurately that we would have ever never known if we hadn't brought in that additional information. And we've expanded on that as well. Pain score data and electronic medical records is proving to be very valuable for us. So if you had the experience, Alan, where a nurse asks you your pain on a scale from one to 10, and then they'll type that into the computer, what we've discovered is pain scores can be used to detect falsifications of records that people are doing to hide their diversion. And it can happen in several ways. The, the one that kind of is uh, most angering to me is if someone claims to give someone their pain medicine, and then the nurse caring for that same patient comes into that patient's room and says, uh, what's your pain score? Well, if the patient didn't get their pain medicine, the patient will say, wow, I was an eight or a nine. Basically, the computer can see That the prior nurse claimed to have gave pain medication, maybe claimed to have charted a low pain score, but the nurse caring for the patient on the next shift is seeing unusual patterns, jumps in pain scores that shouldn't be observed if, in fact, the medication had been administered. So uh, we're doing a lot more with just those two sources, but we've also learned, back to your question, Alan, that we can pull data from additional sources beyond just those first two. One that we're having a lot of luck with is we pull in data from what we call the employee time clocks. So a lot of us have seen in hospitals, they'll have time clocks. So if if I'm a nurse and I'm paid by the hour, I'll clock in at the start of my shift. And at the end of my shift, I'll clock out. And we've loaded now that as an automated feed as a third system. And it's telling us interesting things about patterns of diversion that can be detected By having this third source, a real simple example, we're often seeing that people who are diverting, they might have three or four days off, you know, a long weekend or a holiday or something, and they're actually coming into the hospital when they're not working, and they're dispensing from the cabinet, they're claiming to administer to the patient, when in fact they're pocketing it and going home. It's actually the nature of substance use disorder. You know, if if I'm diverting and I've built up a tolerance to these medications, I might go into withdrawal if I haven't had any for 24 or 48 hours. So what we've discovered is by pulling in the employee time clock as a third feed, we can detect people who are very good at falsifying records, but they're having to come in and and dispense medications on their days off. We're also able to use that employee time clock to see unusual patterns, like someone who clocks in in the morning and immediately goes to the cabinet for dispensing medication, even before they've attended any patient's or check the orders that are needed for the patients. So that's the third system is employee time clock. Does that make sense, Alan, before I list some of the other systems that we've worked with?
0: Yeah, actually, but the question that comes to my mind, and I'm just curious if you know the answer to this, but you know, why wouldn't the hospital systems put in place that you can't log into the system unless it corresponds with your actual duty time?
1: Yeah, I think that's a good idea. The fact is that the manufacturers of the dispensing cabinets don't support that type of integration, at least not yet.
0: Don't support it in that they're not in favor of it, or they just don't have the ability to do it?
1: Oh, just, I'm sure they would support it, but they haven't built the cabinets to accept the information from the time clock. So the time, the cabinet itself wouldn't know a nurse Johnson isn't working and don't allow her to open up a cabinet.
0: I see. Now, now that's not something that you guys do, right? That's not something you implement in your software. You're strictly looking at data points to detect if there's diversion so you can help point it out?
1: Yeah, we're focused on the detection. Maybe someday one of the ADC manufacturers will find a way to have their cabinets disable someone who's not working. But to my knowledge, that hasn't yet been built by any of the cabinet manufacturers.
0: Okay. What are some of the other things that you look at as well?
1: Our original focus was in nursing. That was a good place to start because there's so many nurses in a typical healthcare facility, just a mid-sized hospital might have a thousand nurses or more. But what we found is just looking at nursing is overlooking a lot of areas where diversion could happen. And those other areas include pharmacy, anesthesia, and purchasing. So to really get good coverage there, We've set up data feeds from systems that are in those areas. So, for example, with purchasing, a common diversion pattern is someone who has the authority to either buy medications from a wholesaler or to receive those medications when they're shipped to the facility. They'll find a way to steal those medications. So, kind of an infamous example here in my hometown of Atlanta was at Emory Midtown Hospital, downtown Atlanta. And there were two pharmacy technicians that had found a way to order codeine, cough medicine, and a bunch of hydrocodone and a bunch of other things. And they would place orders from their wholesaler. These are companies like Amerisource Bergen or Cardinal Health or uh, McKesson or any of the smaller players. And so those shipments were being shipped to the hospital. And the person that ordered them in the pharmacy was working with the person who received them on the receiving dock. That person would receive them but they'd never deliver the medications into the hospital. Instead, they were literally wheeling them out to the parking lot and putting them in their trunk. And before they were done, they stole over a million doses. They were able to do this for over three years. So that's an example. What we wanted to do is make sure that if that was happening at any of our customers, we would detect it right away. So what we did is we went to all the big wholesalers, the Cardinal Healths, the McKessons, the Amerisource Bergens, Could you please send us a file of all the shipments that you have sent to our mutual customer? And that way we know precisely what left your warehouse. And then we set up a fourth feed, sorry, fifth feed of what was received at our customer. So it was either received into a central inpatient pharmacy, into a narcotic vault, like an OmniCell Controlled Substance Manager narcotic vault or a Pixis C2 Safe narcotics vault. And by bringing in those additional two feeds, we were able to make sure that every shipment that was sent to the hospital was, in fact, received within the hospital. And that was a a good technique for, for preventing the kind of diversion that I mentioned earlier at Emory Midtown. We've also done some interesting things where we can now join what was being done in the central pharmacy of the hospital in those narcotic vaults to what was sent from central pharmacy out to the nursing stations or from central pharmacy out to the anesthesia areas like the operating room or the post anesthesia care unit or some of the procedure areas like the cath lab. And we're able to detect now diversion that happens in delivery. Say when a pharmacy technician goes from the eighth floor central pharmacy and they go down to the second floor to the OR, if those medications are diverted and they don't all show up in their intended destination, we can detect that kind of diversion. In fact, we were working with one of our customers and they had a pharmacy technician that had found a way to divert. They were uh, actually able to do that for almost four years. And uh, when we loaded the data up from those two systems, the the narcotic vault that was sending the materials and the automated dispensing cabinets that were receiving the materials, the computer actually.
0: somehow I lost Tom. We'll take a quick break and see if I can't get him back. Before we continue our discussion, I want to take a quick break to inform our listeners about NASCA. The National Association of State-Controlled Substance Authorities is a nonprofit that consists of regular members and associate members. Regular members are from various state governmental agencies who have some authority over controlled substances. Agencies like State-Controlled Substance Authorities, Board of Pharmacies, Health Departments, state attorneys general, or PDMP administrators. Associate members are individuals and businesses like pharmaceutical manufacturers, distributors, retail pharmacies, tech and data companies, and others. Their sponsorship provides funding that keeps NASCA operating and allows us to provide educational opportunities like webinars, podcasts, and the annual training conference. NASCA has an executive committee that leads the association. The executive committee is elected by the regular membership and only regular members are eligible to serve on the executive committee. In addition to the executive committee, we also have other committees where both regular and associate members work together. You can learn more about NASCA, its committees and educational opportunities by visiting our website at nasca.org. If you would like to know how to join NASCA or become a sponsor, please visit our website, NASCSA.org. That's NASCSA.org. Okay, so we're back from the break and was able to get Tom back. Actually, uh, go ahead, Tom, with what your point was before we went to the break.
1: Yeah, uh, thanks. And I was in the middle of listing some of the other systems that we pull data from. I've listed so far the first two, which were the automated dispensing cabinet electronic medical record. The third one was the employee time clock that we talked about. The fourth one was the wholesaler feeds on what the hospitals purchased. The fifth one is the narcotic vault on what they've received. And then we've also started to pull in now from a sixth and a seventh system. The six systems in retail pharmacies, uh, like I'm sure all of us have gone in to fill a prescription from our doctor. There's actually a lot of diversion that's happening in those retail pharmacies, not the inpatient pharmacies where we started, but the outpatient ambulatory retail pharmacies. So we found a way to pull in the dispensing and sales data from the retail pharmacies and detect diversion in the retail pharmacies. And then the very last one, the one most recently brought in, is we've discovered that we can pull in data from what's called identity management systems. And so if uh, any of you work in a large company, a large organization, uh, you could log into your computer in the morning as a certain username and password. And if you have the benefits of single sign-on, it allows that computer to access a lot of other source systems without having to enter a password for each one. And so we've set up that seventh feed for identity management systems because it helps us deal with the issues I mentioned earlier. If somebody's called by their maiden name in one system and their a married name in another system, we're able to see that across all the systems and very carefully see, very quickly know who's who across all those different systems.
0: So this is where your, your AI comes in, right? This is where you're talking about. And, and let's talk about that for a minute, because I think that when we think about AI, uh, you know, we start to think back, especially if you're an old timer like myself, you start thinking back to star trek and listening to the computer and spock you know talking to the computer and kirk talking to the computer and it talking back having its own sort of personality kind of thing or or maybe you think a knight rider you know with kit the car you know being able to uh you know drive around itself and have its own personality and its own sort of soul or maybe it's hal from 2001 space odyssey not quite as friendly and nice and i I think that people sometimes, when they think about AI, have a tendency to to talk about it in terms of it maybe having its own personality, its own agenda, you know, those sort of things. And it scares a lot of people. And so you tell me, is that, is sci-fi closer, you know, is it closer to being something sinister or how does it work?
1: Well, I think like any other technology, you can use it for good or you can use it for, for bad. Like any other advancement in technology, and um, I, I think we're living in an amazing time where we can harness AI and, and technology like IAI for good, to you know prevent injury, prevent theft, prevent harm to our patients or our institutions. That's, that's certainly how we're hoping to implement the technology.
0: Well, does it have its own, does it, does it think on its own? I mean, is it, does it have its own ability to learn from itself and sort of guide itself without human interaction at some point, or does it still require you to tell it what it needs to do?
1: Yeah, well, we're living in a fascinating time in that you can train it to recognize patterns if you show it enough data. So there's this broad term called artificial intelligence. And then there's a category of AI that we call machine learning. And most of the advancements right now are in this category called machine learning. So, do you mind if I define those two?
0: No, please do, because that's what I'm curious about.
1: Yeah. So, we're using machine learning just like many other software and technology companies. And what machine learning does is you basically train a computer to recognize certain patterns, it could be recognizing patterns of speech. We've seen that with all these great speech recognition devices that we have in our homes. You can be training it to recognize patterns in photographs, uh, like facial recognition that we hear a lot about in the news. Uh, In our case, we train the computer to recognize patterns in all these data feeds that I've mentioned earlier, and to find patterns that are associated with known diversion cases. So, in our case, machine learning is really just, we assemble a large database of known diversion cases that we've collected with help of our customers all around the country. And we train the computer to recognize those patterns. So some of the patterns, it was really easy for the computer to recognize. I dispensed two hydrocodone tablets. I only administered one. That was an easy pattern to detect.
0: Okay. So when it it does that, then does the computer make a decision on its own what it's going to do next or do you have to tell the computer what it needs to do after it detects it
1: yeah it in our case we have the computer tell its human users how risky or how confident it is that it has detected diversion so in in simple terms it's scanning every time any medication is touched in the hospital. So every one of those dispenses, there could be thousands a day. It's scanning that. And if it sees anything that matches known patterns of diversion, it assigns what we call a risk score to it, just a number from 0 to 100, like 0 to a 1% or 100%. And if it finds something that it, is, it sees as very risky, it will flag that kind of as a needle in the haystack. And the way it works in our software is, Someone who's using our software to detect diversion, like an investigator in the hospital, they can log into the software they'll see I had thousands of thousands of transactions yesterday, but one of them, this needle in the haystack, was flagged by the computer because it thinks it could be diversion so we we really are conservative, and we say just because the computer thinks that there's diversion happening, that doesn't mean the computer got it right. so in our case. The computer basically says to the person, the human who's trained to do the investigation, I think this matches known patterns of diversion. Here's a very high risk alert. And then the person goes in and does an assessment, we call it, and just checks from their professional perspective based on what they see, did the computer get it right? And in the early days of our research, before we had trained this machine learning to be really accurate, we were getting it right about half the time. Which doesn't sound good, but it's much better than most of the technology on the marketplace, like monthly anomalous usage reports that are just showing users that have dispensed a whole lot of medications. They're typically only right about one eighth of the time. So, what happened was because we had hospitals that were willing to look at that alert, every time they looked at it and saw that the alert was accurate, then that starts a whole investigation process where they do the investigator in the hospital does the proper investigation to collect the evidence, to talk to the appropriate people, and to conclude on that evidence whether or not diversion has happened. We we assume the computer's wrong until an investigator who's trained goes out and collects the evidence that indicates uh, the computer was right. And the nice part is anytime they do an investigation, they come back at the end of the investigation and they tell our computer, That initial alert you handed me, that needle you handed me two or three days ago, you either got it right, it was diversion, or you got it wrong, and it wasn't diversion. And the beauty of machine learning, back to the original question, is the computer is really good at learning from its mistakes. So if it handed a high-risk alert to an investigator and the investigator collected the information, talked to the people involved, reached the conclusion that it was not diversion, and then comes back and says, no, this wasn't, in fact, a needle in the haystack, and you you sent me an alert that was not the version. The computer is really good at learning from the mistake. It adjusts the mathematics that creates the risk scores. So then it's much less likely, when it sees that pattern in the future, to flag it as a high-risk alert.
0: So does the, does the investigator, how does the investigator communicate that back to the computer?
1: Yeah, so we actually have a really nice visual dashboard inside of our software. And it's even got red alerts. So in this haystack of thousands of transactions each day, there might be three or four red alerts. And the investigator can just click on those and it will pull up all the information about that transaction. You know, this nurse dispensed this medication at this time yesterday from this machine for this patient. And right next to it, right on the screen, is what we call the assessment result or the investigation result. And they can pick. Was this in fact worth investigating? And at the conclusion of the investigation, they can pick. The investigation concluded diversion occurred, and it's right there on the screen.
0: So, uh, let me ask you this: Where do you think things are going to go from here? Like, I know that that's probably a, a too open-ended of a question, but let's just talk in the near future. Like, how close are we to AI being able to, you know, shut down a particular cabinet and alerting a boss and those sort of things?
1: Yeah, I I think that we should be cautious here. That's certainly the strategy we've taken. We don't want machine learning or computer to have the ability to restrict someone's access to medicines. You know, this is a clinician who might have an urgent need for a patient. Long story short, we always want a human in the loop, and we're asking all of our customers to only assume that the the original alert that came from the computer is accurate after they've conducted the investigation. So we do not plan to answer your question to have the computer, you know, go in and and log someone out and restrict someone's access to the medication. We want a person involved. In fact, we recommend that not only as an investigator in the loop, but as a third step, we have an adjudication process. And so most of our hospitals, they have a group. They call it like a drug diversion oversight committee, or they might call it a drug diversion prevention council. And so we recommend an even additional safeguard that after the investigator has collected the evidence and they reach the conclusion that in their opinion, diversion has happened, we recommend they they get together with their committee and they present that evidence and have the committee, almost like a jury, adjudicate that and reach the same conclusion. And they might overrule the investigator. They might ask the investigator for more information or evidence, or more likely than not, what we see is the original alert was accurate. The investigation confirmed that through evidence and the adjudication process reached the same conclusion. So it's almost like the investigator is presenting the evidence and the jury is deciding. So that's, that's our strong policy, Alan, is we view the technology as really just focusing the investigators' attention on diversion they might not otherwise have found. Because I think there's risks if you try and put, do too much through the computer. I think we need humans involved. Uh, many of these people that are diverting, you know, they never set out to become someone with substance use disorder. They certainly didn't start diverting uh, for personal use, hoping to get addicted. We we really want to err on the human side of compassion, and in particular, we, we encourage our customers when they do find diversion, when they do investigate and adjudicate, include diversion happen, we really want to help that person to get the help they need to deal with their substance use disorder, to deal with their addiction, maybe go into a recovery program if, they, if they're open to it, and find a way that they can stop their substance use and and hopefully uh, emerge from that, able to continue to practice medicine, continue to help patients, and continue with a healthy life. So we're we're really erring on the side of not just trusting the computer to know the circumstances, but rather to have the computer just be an aid to direct our resources towards those people that are diverting that might otherwise not be detected as diverting.
0: Well, that's a good thing, and I'm sure there's a lot of listeners that are breathing a sigh of relief on that. So lastly, before we just kind of conclude, is there any new tech or anything you see on the horizon that you're thinking about or excited about or anything you want to share?
1: Wow. Uh, we're living in a revolution of technology. I'm pretty sure the historians 100 years from now are going to come up with a name to describe just how fast technology is moving. The thing that I have seen you know, as an engineer since I graduated many years ago is the pace at which we can put analytics together, just put code together into computers to help us, help us not only detect aversion, but help us diagnose disease, help us save time, all these great things. It, you know, it used to take back when I was doing research in graduate school, I did artificial intelligence, and you had to code each individual rule into a computer. They were called a heuristics And it might take you six months just to get a really basic program together to do basic diagnosis, say, like a medical doctor would do. And you can now do six months worth of work in about six hours. It's really striking as a software developer how you can take this library of code that's available, much of it available for free, and you can build it into tools to do machine learning for all these different domains. So the the biggest constraint that we see is back to the availability of data to train the computers. The computers will learn quickly, and it's easy to teach them how to learn using these libraries. But unless you have great quantities of data to train them on, that's going to be the bottleneck. So I think what we're going to find is more and more benefits from doing the data integration piece, which we talked about at the start of the interview, and finding ways that we can leverage Information that currently doesn't talk to each other to um, to make better decisions, to run organizations, and to help our patients be safer.
0: The last thing I want to uh, just give you an opportunity to talk about because you also started a nonprofit, and I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about that for just a minute to, so the listeners understand what that is. Yeah, th-
1: thanks much. We we did start a nonprofit. It's called Healthcare Diversion Network. And our website, I encourage your listeners to visit, is called healthcarediversion.org. We started it just over a year ago. And what we learned is with the technology that's available now, we really need to find a way to make sure that the general public and the um, health systems of the country, you know, the CEOs of these hospitals and health systems, that we're all aware of how often diversion happens and that we're doing everything we can as a nation to report diversion where it occurs, to get the folks who are diverting the help they need. And that's really our mission, is to share those best practices of the best ways to prevent diversion in healthcare. It, It actually was an idea that came out of a conversation I had with the Centers for Disease Control about two years ago, is we were commenting with them, they were actually sharing with us data on how many infections are happening around the country as a result of diversion, where say a nurse is uh, sticking a needle in in their arm and then replacing that medication with saline and then that gets injected into a patient causing them to be infected with say hepatitis C. And and they were very excited about our technology and how it could help hospitals to detect that kind of diversion. But they pointed out that a nonprofit organization like the Centers for Disease Control or, or federal agents like that, they can only work with nonprofits they can't work with for-profit companies. And they said, you know, what we really need is a national nonprofit that would bring public groups like the Centers for Disease Control, uh, state organizations. NASCA is a great example. We'd love to partner with NASCA when the timing's right. And private enterprise, you know, the health systems themselves, technology companies like Invistics, just concerned citizens that are that are trying to bring best practices for drug diversion together. So, uh, it was based on that suggestion that we formed this nonprofit called Healthcare Diversion Network. And it's already off the ground, even though it's only a year old. We've got a wonderful advisory board that includes the Centers for Disease Control, includes a lot of representatives from around the country. It includes uh, CEOs from health systems in different states around the country. And uh, we continue to look for people that can join our advisory board. And on our website, we've already got quite a bit of information published. You know, best practices for how you can report diversion that happens in your healthcare system, best practices for how you can prevent diversion. And we've also got a, a fairly large and growing database of known diversion incidents that have been reported around the country that were published, say, by a board of nursing or board of pharmacy or criminal cases prosecuted by organizations like the DEA. So if you go to our website, you can actually search for diversion incidents that have happened in your state or in your city. Got a nice map that shows a point on the map for every point on the database in the database that we have loaded. And the idea is that by showing that on a map, we're gonna show people just how often diversion is happening. It's probably happening in their backyard, like the case I mentioned in Atlanta in my case. And we're hoping to raise awareness of just how frequently it happens and have a what we call a public-private partnership that includes federal groups like the CDC, state licensure boards, state public health boards, local law enforcement, and then, of course, the private groups that are also active in the space. So we have all those stakeholders around the table, and we're coming up with the best ways we can as a country to reduce healthcare diversion.
0: Well, that sounds really good. I wish you well on that, and I just want to, again, thank you for being here and sharing your expertise and knowledge. I really enjoyed the conversation. I like talking about tech, even though I'm not a techie myself, but uh, you certainly have the knowledge and the expertise and I appreciate you being here.
1: Well, thanks so much for having me, Alan, and thanks again for uh, your speech you gave at the NASCA conference in 2015 because it was really instrumental in getting me thinking about these issues and, and delighted to be collaborating with you to this day.
0: Oh, that's great. Thanks very much, Tom. Thank you. I'm your host, Alan McGill. On behalf of the Executive Board of NASCA and our Education Committee, I want to thank you for joining us. The music for this podcast was provided by Joseph McDade. And if you like Joe's music, please visit josephmcdade.com. You can support Joe on Patreon. You can also find all of our episodes at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever podcasts can be found. I also want to thank our platinum, gold, and silver sponsors. Without them, we could not provide educational opportunities such as this podcast. NASCA also invites you to join us at our annual training conference, where we educate through networking, exchange of ideas, and by experiencing some of the best speakers on current topics and trends involving controlled substances. To learn more about NASCA, our conferences, and educational programs, visit our website, nascsa.org. That's nasca.org. I hope you learned something and moved forward. Please join us again on our next podcast.